Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. All right, I had to jump back in here and create a part two and a half of the last section. Uh, my apologies for the audio difficulties in the last one. It was kind of bouncing from left to right, left to right on the speaker. Anyway, this should be more even and sound more even. In the last section of um, Hassan Jeffries giving his, his pseudo-professional development here, which, by the way, there was a very small audience. We're talking about a few administrators and a few teachers at the most. And again, this is probably a few hours later since I first recorded it, um, and there's only 22 views of the entire video. So... In the last section, though, he takes questions from some very naive teachers, two in particular, and I just kind of want to play that and then dive in from time to time and provide my two cents. Um, the naivete of these of these educators is alarming, but you can almost see on the surface that that what they're asking is something that they shouldn't even be asking. Because the thing that Dr. Jeffries wants them to do or, or implement uh, is ridiculous. So I'm just going to play that. Um, again, I'll dive in from time to time. This will be much shorter. It's not going to be a 50-minute long thing, but uh, here we go. Oh, cut it off. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I was just wondering, I know that um, like an issue that's been talked about is disproportionately disciplining uh, minority students. And yeah. um, like even within my, my own school, I know that I, I typically do see um, more of like my African-American students um, stay, staying in from recess with me even in the past. And um, like, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what, what ways might my behavior management techniques be ineffective with this? Because I feel like I have these really strong relationships with the kids. And, you know, when we talk about it, like we have good conversation about choices and stuff. But then it seems like a cycle that repeats. And I like I don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you know, it's hard to say. Well, how, how old are the kids that you? Fifth how old? Fifth grade. You know, fifth grade is hard to say. Yeah, fifth grade is hard. I mean, part of part of what you know, I, I, there's always there's always a balance, right? Between um, and I understand classroom management, right? Between you know showing grace, uh, having flexibility, uh, knowing that kids learn in different ways, in different styles, and have you know different um, ways of approaching learning and interacting with one another. Um, there has to be um, you have to maintain order. I, I get that. Right. I totally get that in the classroom. I think part of and, and, and the way you do that is by sort of, you know, the, the firm, um, um, you know, setting, setting, setting the standards, setting like this is what we do. This is what we don't do. This is why we do it. This is why we don't do it. Right. Explaining, you know, why, you know, the certain you know codes of conduct and, you know, how you how you manage a classroom with it takes a while. Like, I don't think it's enough just to say, hey, this is what we do and this is why we don't do it. And if you do it again, you're getting held up, right? Like that then becomes problematic, right? And it, I think what you're doing, Nicole, you said, you know, you're having these conversations. Like, that's what you do, right? You have the conversation. So students understand, well, what, okay, what's the problem here, 
right? Because we also have different standards in different classrooms, right? I mean, just because we're human beings, right? We, we operate differently. We interact with children differently. And so making clear what your expectations are, what your standards are, and not being so quick, um, not saying that you are, but in general, not being so quick to send a kid, uh, you know, to, to, to give them that harsh disciplinary punishment. We know for a fact uh, the Justice Department uh, did a study just a couple years ago, and they were like, this disproportionate disciplinary action uh, is occurring for children of color in preschool, in preschool. So that means that this isn't just, we're not, this isn't just what kids are doing. What we're doing is projecting onto kids motivation and intent. Projecting onto kids, there's that kids word again, no, they're students, Projecting onto students' motivation and intent. No, no, no. That's not what's happening. He's implying that it's the that it be, if a teacher holds a student responsible for their for their ill-timed or inappropriate behavior, that it's the teacher's fault, and that somehow students are seeing that teacher do that, and that's making students more angry, and so it's the teacher's fault. No, not always. In fact, in her case, she's basically saying, I'm trying to get a hold of something and control something of which I cannot control. Because what he doesn't say, Dr. Jeffries, is he doesn't say, the home is the problem. The lack of the nuclear family is the problem. The lack of having strong, present males and strong, present females together in the same environment is what matters. That's where they're supposed to learn manners. That's the whole point. And then they take those manners into the social environment of a school building or just public and then they're supposed to operate appropriately so if you don't see people acting appropriately in public that's indicative of what's going on in the home is that this teacher's fault no it's not the teacher has to protect students and protect students from other students if she has students that are misbehaving and it just so happens that the vast majority of them are black. That's not her fault. That's not other people's fault who work in the building. That probably has to do with the home in which those students or children are being raised in. That's where that comes from. So it's not a racism thing. It's a demographic thing. It's a a lack of, of structure in the home from the moment that they're born all the way to the moment when they start entering social settings where there's discipline, like in a school building. That's the issue here. And so that's where we have to become a little bit more self-reflective. Is this just a kid who's tired, right? Or is this a kid who's, who, who is purposely trying to be disruptive, right? I mean, like that's where we have to, you know, do a little bit more of our, uh, you know, a little bit more introspection on ourselves. Like if this kid was a little white girl, we, we just give a little bit more grace than if it's a young black boy, right? I mean, so there we just, now some of it maybe this kid just acting up, right? Like, okay, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down, I'm okay with dropping the hammer, right? Not not, not dragging him out in, in, in handcuffs, right? But, but being strong and, and firm. You got to maintain control of the classroom. But I think we do have to, in our individual cases, 
Like, okay, am I just reacting to this, right? Am I defaulting back because I'm in some sort of stressful situation? I don't need, I don't have the time to have a deep introspective thought, but am I just reacting to this or do, or is this just a kid who's just tired, right? Or is this a kid who's just expressing themselves in a different way? And so I think if we're just, as you said, two things, talking to the kids, being clear about what the expectations are and setting those expectations high, kids will rise to high expectations if they believe that the expectations are being set not to punish, but but to advance them, but to help them, they will rise to that no matter who they are. And I think they have to be aware of that. So we share the expectations with them. And then before we before we jump to a conclusion, we have a little self check in like, all right, you know, this is how I feel like reacting. But is that fair? Uh, and then I think, you know, and then I think we can can move away. One of the things that becomes difficult, though is that you're also not interacting with your kids just in isolation. So sometimes we see children, uh, and, and and this is why that preschool thing, right? You're disciplining kids at this early age. When kids, any child, but it, especially we see it more often with children of color, that when they are told that they are discipline, that they are a disciplinary problem, then, then they will become a disciplinary problem, right? And that will carry over from class to class to class because one, that, and many times we see that's a way for them to get the only attention that they get and again, there's a lot there. The first thing is that if it's happening in preschool and they're acting out in preschool, that's usually because there's no discipline in the home. By the time they reach preschool and they don't know how to behave, in many cases, I'm not saying it's too late. It's not too late, but there has to be appropriate discipline and manners teaching in the home. It's not the job of the school to raise a child. That's the difference here between the two of us on this entire wavelength. I know it's not the job of the school to raise a child because school isn't the parent. The child is not the child of government. It's the family's job to do that. Now, the school can communicate with a family and say, we have a problem here. This is a social setting. We're in public. Your child is behaving this way. That's not going to work out for this environment. They're not looking at the parents and saying, your child is a criminal. He's going to be a criminal because he doesn't know how to behave. He's going to be a criminal. There's no hope. Just send him straight to jail. That way he doesn't hurt anybody else. That's not what's being said. But this is also in Eric Erickson's Eight Stages of Psychosocial Development. If you're unfamiliar with that, please look it up. By the time a child reaches a particular age, there's already supposed to be things that have already been accomplished. That way, when they move on in their development, they carry those with them. But if they don't have them from the time they're a child, they end up being adult babies. And adult babies break crime or break the law. And adult babies go to jail. That's the way that that works. So this poor teacher is trying to control a, a societal thing in a in a a lack of a nuclear family thing for which she has no control over. She has no control over that. I mean, so that becomes, so you can be saying everything right, right? But then that breaks down because of what else is going on in somebody else's classroom or how they're being treated in the hallways or else. So, so part of the solution, part of why it becomes a challenge uh, is because it has to be a collective effort, right? I mean, it has to be a school-wide sort of approach to say, okay, let's look at our numbers, right? Let's look at what we're doing. And if we see something askew, we know that we have to buck these trends. And then how can we do that collectively, 
So we're not so we're not putting these kids in this cycle of discipline that then leads them not to want to learn. So I know you talked about like setting high expectations and the power of language. Is there is there any language like you gave examples with, you know, instead of slave owners, people who enslaved other people um, with setting those high expectations and stuff that you've seen be especially effective? Oh, yeah. Just to, you could just say, I think you're smart. I know you're smart. The positive affirmations. You don't know how many, you know, how many, how many times, um, you know, uh, black children have never been told that they're smart. Right. I mean, just just literally some those. That's what I'm saying. The negative stereotypes, those positive affirmations. I believe in you. I know you can do this. I mean, that helps every student, but it especially is important with children of color because they don't hear it. They don't see the signals like on television and 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 the ways in the larger society is not signaling to them. Like you don't need to tell them that they're a good basketball player. Like I bet you're good on the basketball court, right? They get that all the time, but they don't have. You know what? You, I, I think you're a really good reader, right? I mean, those positive affirmations are so important because what what will that then do? That then moves you as the instructor into a different category. And what category is that? Did you hear what he just said? Again, he doesn't say the family. He doesn't say it's the family's problem. This is the family's issue. It's the family. It's the breakdown of the family. Not the school, not the teacher, the family. He now wants teachers to be the parents of parentless students. That's what he's asking. He's saying, start being the parent because they don't have parents. And then, of course, he makes it about race again. And, it, and then he covers his backside and says, but it's not, you know, it's not all black children and or it's not all whatever black Americans. Right. It's a human being thing. It's a human development problem. That's what this is. But it's not the role of the teacher to play parent. That's not the point. They can provide simple guidance and education and, and teach them things. And yes, positive affirmation. Sure. When they're warranted. But it's not their job to raise them. Like Miss Nicole, like she's somebody who actually believes in me. So I'm going to pay attention a little bit more. A lot of the actual disciplinary problems, like a lot of a lot of stuff that kids get disciplined for are not actually disciplinary problems. Like that's projection stuff. Right. I mean, that, that has more to do with us. But sometimes you do have real disciplinary issues. Right. That that, you know, that if they're not created by the outside of the classroom. Right. It's because kids have built up this expectation that that's how they are to act and perform. Right. It becomes performance and we reinforce it. But when you break that down with those positive affirmations, right, then I think you begin to see the children, you know, wanting to meet those new expectations, with, which isn't just I'm not going to act up, but I'm going to do my best. And that's what we want. Like fifth graders. I mean, you know, in essence, you got to give them some of these intellectual hugs, right? Like tell them, you know, you know, I'm with you. I'm on your team. I want you to do this. I believe that you can do it. So it's not always just I want, but I believe I see it. I've seen it in you. Right. Like that then translates into those disciplinary um, uh, ameliorating some of those disciplinary issues. Thanks. Thank you. That's really, that's helpful to think about how, how my, my language could change there too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, 
I mean, I think I th that's one of those areas I think we all can really work on what we say and how we say it and how often we say it to our, to our students and to young people. Yeah. The simple fact that she's asking this question to is really indicative of the failure of her teacher education program. Where were they for four years? If she's having to do this now and she doesn't even know how to talk to students, I mean, good God. She got, she got hired. She got hired. And she's having a problem with students who don't know how to behave in public. I mean, that's not a new thing, but that's what teacher education programs are supposed to do. They're supposed to get them to understand that you're going to encounter everybody in society who is going to be in society in the future. And some of these people, yes, they just don't have manners. Doesn't matter their race, they just or their gender, they just don't have manners. Some people don't. They just don't. They don't say please. They don't say thank you. They step on the backs of people's shoes. They trip people. They push people. This happens in society, even among adults. And it's too bad, but there you go. Here's the next question. And talk a little longer. <laughs> I do have a question. Yes, Rachel. So I am a second year teacher this year. So I just graduated from Ohio State in May of 2019. Um, and I posed a question in my equity and diversity class in one of my last semesters about when to use black or when to use African-American. Um, and no one was able to answer the question for me. Like they told me, well, you should ask them what their preference is. And I'm like, but if I'm teaching, like, do I go, hey, so-and-so, what do you prefer to be called? Because no one asks me, like, do I want to be called white or Irish American, because that's my culture, you know, like, what do I do about my kids that were born here in Columbus versus my kids that were born in Somalia? Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's, it's a great question because it's based on nothing. It's ridiculous. And if that was covered in her undergraduate work, her undergraduate work, again, failed her. Do you have students? Yes. Do they have names? Yes. You call them names. You call them the names that they have. That's it. That's it. No teacher goes, hey, white student Sean Brooks, do you have a question? What would you like to say? No one does that. Nobody does that. It doesn't matter where your students come from. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Call them their names. That's all. Call them by their name. That's real simple. But let's listen to this long, long answer. So first, I think the recognition is that names and labels are all political. Like, I mean, so these what we call ourselves, like have political roots and, and, and meaning. Um, I think in general, like when you have native born Africans, right? So obviously Columbus, Ohio is second largest Somali population in the United States. Then we're talking about a different kind, if you will, right? You have an African born, uh, you know, a, 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 an immediate uh, immigrant from Africa. So that's a different kind of African-American. So I think in that sense, like if a person is, you know, a Somali descent, then he's a Somali descent in this generation now. Uh, I think the bigger, so the African-American community, right, that you can use interchangeably, 
right? So people of African descent who are born here in the United States and have been here uh, for multiple generations, that I think you can be them, us, I, you can comfortably refer to as either Black or African-American. I think when we, the, the, the advantage of Black uh, capitalized uh, is that it provides a more diasporic reach, right? It, it can it can be inclusive of, of people from the African diaspora. You know, the actual term would be uh, a person of African descent born in the United States, right? But who's walking around saying, hello, it's very nice to meet you, person of African descent born in the United States, right? right. So we, we shorthand that uh, to, to black, black people, black folk, a black person, or African-American to refer to African-Americans, people of color, of African descent who have been born in the United States for, you know, for uh, a couple generations dating back to slavery or even more recently. Um, and then uh, if we, because we don't know a specific count country of origin, right? Like I, I, I can't, my DNA says I got some people from Ni Nigeria, but that ain't really helping me. Right. Uh, but if you have children now who are children of parents who were immigrated from migrated, immigrated from Somalia, uh, or Ethiopia or Eritrea, I mean, they are able to identify that, then it's totally fine. They're like a person, of, and they're born here, Somali-American, right? Um, now, individually, you can always ask, right? Or they may say, and you just be open to it. Okay, cool. I think in general, we say people of the African diaspora, if we're incorporating, we want to go global, African-American, Black, if we want to think about local. Now, what we want to avoid, the only thing we need to avoid, we will avoid Negroes, we avoid coloreds, we avoid the N-word, and we avoid the objectification, right? So the article, right? The blacks, right? Like that's, I mean, it's short of that, then you're, you're, you're in safe, you're in safe ground. And, and most people don't have a hard objection. Most African-Americans, people born here for a couple of generations, don't have a hard objection to either being black or African-American. I think part of the distinction though, uh, becomes when people, um, of, uh, who are or newer immigrants from the diaspora, I'm like, wait a minute, right? Like, don't erase my uh, country of origin. My. It doesn't matter. Again, do you hear his answer and how long and drawn out it is? I answered the question in a matter of seconds, probably under a minute. He just goes on and on and on. No one teaches that way. No, nobody. Nobody. Nobody addresses someone and says, like what she said, hey, Irish European girl, raise your hand if you have a question. No one does that. No one. And it doesn't matter if she's teaching history or not. Say she's teaching history and she's talking about different areas and different people. So what? So what? So what? Call people by their names. It's not hard. My God, that's just communication 101. Country heritage that I'm able to identify, right? Like we don't want to do that. And so there you get a little pushback. We want to acknowledge that. Uh, but then, you know, what they may not know uh, that, that we do know is that very soon they're going to be very black. They're going to be very African-American, right? Because this is the way uh, race uh, and racial identity gets formed in America going forward. So not right now, uh, but in, in due time. That's a good question. Thank so you. That helps. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So maybe maybe one more, Nicole. That last question you had. Yeah, if if nobody else um, wants to ask something, 
Okay. Um, so just like over the last few years, I feel like I've been becoming more aware of like these racial and cultural issues. And it's still something where I feel like I don't know how much I don't know. Um, and so I guess just with wanting to, you know, even, even just be the best citizen and like person I can possibly be, but wanting to be knowledgeable of these topics for my students, um, do you do you have not only some just initial thoughts on like ways that we are still limiting the opportunities of minorities and African Americans in general, but also some recommendations for like as an educator, some resources I could go to to really start I, like bettering my own practice and just mm -hmm. my personal knowledge of the topic. Yeah. So as as an educator. Um, I think I've, I've done some work with a lot of work the last couple of years with uh, teaching tolerance. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, familiar with them out of the I've, division. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. familiar with it. Okay, yeah, you know, check it out. It's a division of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, it's their educational arm. Uh, and they do wonderful uh, work and, and produce a number of materials um, for, you know, uh, culturally responsive pedagogy, um, and, and not just sort of what to do, but then also resources and materials. I'm glad he mentioned that. Teaching tolerance. The teaching tolerance stuff is the social emotional learning garbage that is also Marxist. And I'm calling it garbage because it doesn't seek to actually teach the individual how to behave in society with manners and be law-abiding and what have you. It spends the entire school day teaching them how to behave because, again, they aren't being taught in the home. So the government says, we'll teach you how to behave. We'll teach you how to do that. Leave it to government and we'll do it. And they don't teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic and critical thought. They're not teaching them that. The Southern Poverty Law Center, too, is about as corrupt as it possibly gets. They're a Marxist organization. That's what they do. Do what we say or else. We will push our curriculum on you. You will do it. You'll get a kickback if you teach it. And then there you have it. What this young teacher is having a hard time with is how on earth could all of these students that she has not know how to behave in public? And I've already talked about that. She needs to read Dr. Thomas Sowell. She's never even heard of him, probably never even touched one of his books. That's the first problem. That's the first problem. Because she would already know about the destruction of the nuclear family, in particular, since he's mentioning race, the, the destruction of the black nuclear family as a result of Lyndon Johnson's welfare state and the economic circumstances in the in the 50s and 60s that destroyed the nuclear family. She would know about that if she was being taught accurate history. And this guy's a history professor who probably at one point was a school teacher for maybe a couple of years at the most of his entire life. And then shot right up the ladder for a variety of reasons, I'm sure. Um, some of which I'm sure are political. And his brother's tied in too, and there you have it. But there you go. So 
Let's listen to the rest of his answer. I teach um, about, uh, you know, uh, bias and, and the like. So I would encourage you to check out Teaching Tolerance and their website. All their materials are free. They got videos and films, stuff that you can use in the classroom, but also educator uh, resources. I've been doing a, um, uh, a podcast with them for the last three years on teaching slavery and teaching civil rights, teaching hard history. I mean, so there's a number of sort of resources and materials that I would recommend and, and recommendations and books and they host webinars. So that's a great sort of resource. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, it's focused on K through 12. Um, and, and I still, I read all their stuff all the time. Um, and so they're wonderful. Uh, the Zen education project is also, um, has a number of resources available through its websites and D-I-N-N, Zen, Z-I-N-N. And then slash uh, teaching for change. If you Google, like they have like wonderful stuff on social justice and anti-racism materials and book recommendations, um, especially for um, uh, young learners. So that fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade uh, and material. So I think all of that, um, I think those are two great places to start. Um, and you'll get some really good resources, frameworks for teaching uh, and the like. What was that first one you said? Um, Teaching tolerance. Thank you. Uh huh. Teaching tolerance and 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 stuff for your various subjects, right? So it's not just you know history and civics and social you know social studies. It's um, you know how to teach, talk about issues of today, immigration and, and the like, presidential election. You know, I mean, all these issues. They they produce wonderful material on that. So no, no, oh my. These two girls, again, thank God it's only two of them, but they're, they're writing it down with such rigor and, and, uh, and intense looks on their faces. Um, no, don't. It's race baiting. It's race hustling. That's what teaching tolerance is. That's what the Southern Poverty Law Center is. That's what all of this is. It's race hustling. Racism is a problem, so you need to teach it in the classroom. Don't teach math. Don't teach them how to read and write. Don't teach them about... Um, economics. Don't teach them about anything like that. Don't teach them about the strength of the nuclear family. Don't do that. Teach them about racism and racism and racism. Racism will get you down. It'll keep you down and there's nothing you can do about it. That's what those programs seek to do. End of story. And it's too bad. It's just really too bad because again, thankfully it's only, it was, it was only uh, two educators sitting in on this, but wow. Those two educators really were let down by their teacher education programs. And uh, as you heard, at least one of them went to Ohio State. So there you go. That should tell you something about Ohio State's teacher education program right there. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Don't forget to check out AmericanEducationFM.com where you can make a small donation or even email us and be a guest on the podcast. Until next time, never stop learning, never stop reading, and never stop unlearning. Thanks for listening, and God bless.